So this evening, uh, I would like to talk about emptiness, because this is a big theme in the Son tradition. This is really like one, one of the major ideas in the Son tradition is about emptiness. But I think we have to, that's why I want to look at different aspects, because often uh, one thinks of emptiness as is capital E, emptiness, and that at some point we'll find this mystical, special emptiness somewhere. So either we'll disappear into it, and then we're just left with a little puff of smokes on the cushion. Or we'll swim in emptiness and then it uh, will totally change our life. Emptiness will be with us, not the force, emptiness. But actually we might more think of emptying instead of the emptiness. But first, I'd like to, to read a quote uh, from uh, Master Tawe, a Chinese master of the 11th, 12th century, who is the one who really, in a way, developed that uh, practice of questioning. And this is what he says about emptiness, empty. And I find this quote personally very useful. It's a little tricky, and so I'm going to read it, and then at the end of the talk, I'll put it on the board so you can look at it again. So that's what he said. In the daily activities of a student of the path, to empty object is easy, but to empty mind is hard. If objects are empty, the mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind and objects will be empty of themselves. So what is he saying here? Personally, I think he's saying something really important. He's basically saying that to empty object is easy. And it's true in a way that what he's basically saying is that we can easily, on the meditative path, on the spiritual path, start to have this impression that we are beyond the mundane. We are beyond the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And that the nitty-gritty, it's all empty, it's all illusion, so who cares, you know? Who cares about material thing? Who cares about sex? Who cares about alcohol? Who cares? It's just empty. And so what he's saying is be careful. Because if you have what he suggests is a, in a way a superficial emptying, a superficial emptiness, which personally, I would say, then becomes more akin to some kind of indifference. Oh, I don't care about this. Oh, I don't care about that. Oh, I am, you know. And 
and it's easy to, to have this kind of like separation from the nitty-gritty, from the mundane, saying, oh yes, you know, I am way beyond that. You know, I don't care about material thing. I don't care about this. And the problem if we do this is that we can actually relatively, up to a point, easily do that. And it's kind of like, it's kind of what I would call detachment. That's why I don't use this word, detachment. We can easily, you know, we become detached. Oh, yes. But he said this is kind of, you know, really superficial. Because what is really hard is to empty the mind. And then he says, if objects are empty, but mind is not, mind will overcome by objects. And I think we can see this again and again. Because often with this idea of emptiness, you will have this idea that, you know, I am beyond ethics. That I find very interesting, the kind of the jump from everything is empty to I am beyond ethics. Ethics doesn't matter because everything is empty. But then it's strange, the first thing they do is go and have sex and drink alcohol. If it's empty, why do they need to do it? You know, they could, you know, drink molasses and be abstinent. That would be special. That would be different. That would be true emptiness. So I think it's kind of like to look, what is it? that is empty? What is it that is being emptied? Because he says, just empty your mind, and objects will be empty of themselves. So it's not, the practice is not to reject life, is not to reject material things or feelings or whatever, but it's what does it mean to empty the mind? Because often we hear this, empty the mind. And so the first thing we kind of imagine is that then we must have no thought. This is again, <laughs> you know, empty the mind means to have no thought. When actually Master Wineng says to, to have no thought, is to see and know all things without attachment, without grasping. So it's not, we are not emptying things, but we are actually emptying ourselves through dissolving, through releasing, through de-grasping. De and then, in a way, you can have the other side of emptiness, which I would call creative engagement. So first, so I personally would say that in a way, this notion of emptiness in Buddhism has a long story. So often, emptiness is more associated with uh, the Mahayana tradition. But if you look at the early text, you will find reference to emptiness, but in a very different way. But what generally the first idea, the first aspect of emptiness is this idea of not-self. And so I like to read just two different, I mean, these two different quotes are 
you could say come from two different traditions? And possibly not. So the first one is from the Heart Sutra. This is a very important text in the Song tradition. You recite it as much as you would recite the four vows. This is really basic. And so this is one of the quotes from it. For this reason, in emptiness, there is no form, no feeling, no perception, impulse, consciousness, no eyes, ears, nose, tongues, body, mind. So here you have this, in a way, this negation, this practice of negation. In emptiness, you don't have form, feeling, perception, eyes, ears, nose, etc. So basically, that could give the impression that in a way you negate everything that makes us human in terms of existing in the world. If you have no form, no consciousness, no impulses, no eyes, no ears. But what is meant by that? Because it also says emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Emptiness is impulse, impulse is emptiness. So there is a correlation, there is a connection between the two. But actually, you find nearly exactly the same language in the Kasaka Sutta, in the early Pali text, and where the Buddha says, where no I exist, no form exists, no sphere of consciousness and contact at the I exist. So personally, I think it's kind of really, totally kind of like a continuation from that Sutta to the Heart Sutra. But the Buddha is not negating that there is the sense that we see, that there is a consciousness of seeing, or that you see something. That's not what actually is negating. Because at the end of the sutta, what it says, what they speak of is not mine. So when we speak of not self, we're not negating existence. I think this is really important. When you talk of emptiness, you're not negating existence. But what, you, what you're negating, what you're questioning, is ownership. So the not-self is not about non-existence. It's about ownership. To what degree are we going to identify with the sense of seeing, with what we see, with the visual perception, etc., etc.? So what is questioned is actually the identification, not the thing itself, not the functioning itself. And this is something we can really Notice, of course, uh, we often told that we move from I am, my thought, my feeling, my sensation, my problem, to I have a thought, I have a sensation, I have an emotion, I have a problem. 
So linguistically you can see the difference. I am my thought, I have a thought. But experientially, what is interesting is a process of grasping and identification. What happens? That's what I think we have to look at is what happens when I have a thought? And at what point from just having a thought and he continue a little bit and then he goes? What happens when suddenly there is a stickiness and it feels like I cannot stop the thought and more than that, I cannot be anything other than the thought. And I think when we talk about emptiness and not self, actually what it's trying to, I think it's kind of like a medicine for the tendency to reduce. I think what the, the Buddha is trying and the, the different teacher of the past are trying to point out is that we are more than one thought. We are more than one emotion. We are more than one sensation. We are more than one problem. But when we caught in the thought, we cannot see anything else. And so that's what I think in terms of doing the meditation, being on a retreat, in terms of, you know, our relationship with emptying, emptiness, not self. How does it feel when I have a thought, comes and go, I have feelings, they come and go, sensations, they come and go, and the point at which suddenly, for whatever reason, I identify. This thought is me. And then from that, you have this kind of two strange process of amplifying of the thought and reducing the identity to that thought. And so kind of the two goes together. And so, and then we really, what is interesting, we cannot see anything else. We feel, this is it. I am that. And we feel often really blocked. Like, I cannot stop this. It's kind of like, it's kind of something within me is becoming the thought. And if I become the thought, then I cannot see anything else. I cannot hear the birds, I, I am not even here. I could be 10 years ago, I could be five years ahead. And I'm really not multi-perspectival. I think to me the not-self is basically about that. Moving from reducing ourselves to one element instead of seeing that element embedded in many other elements. The same with, um, with a feeling. Feeling are just creative functioning of the human being. But sometimes you might have the feeling, I am a sad person, or I am a stupid person, or I am an angry person. And then sometimes what is interesting is that then you kind of 
nearly start to over-identify. I am an angry person, then I have the right to be angry, then I'll be as angry as I want. So sometimes it's kind of like you even amplify the identification, but often because you don't seem to be able to bring freedom within it. So often we think, well, we might as well go the whole thing. I am stupid, let's make as many mistakes as I can. I am sad, I'm so sad, and then you... It's interesting that, you know, with that kind of nearly like, like that eternal vision, like we cannot see anything else. And that, I mean, that's very painful. A lot of the time, this is so painful. To be caught in a thought or to be caught in an emotion. And why is it so painful? Because we reduce our identity to so little. I am not saying it does not exist, but we are not just that. We are more than that. So basically, not self is about that. It's saying, I am more than a thought, an emotion, a sensation, a problem. A sensation, it's interesting, sensation, they can, they can become so intense. You can have mild sensation, like a little itch. I find it so fascinating. You know, I sit in meditation and suddenly I think, God, there is this itch here. Wow, there is this itch here. Mm. It's itchy. Mm. And then I think, you know, okay, let's be with it. <laughs> I am with it. Then I'm more with the meditation. So I leave the itch, more with the question. And then I go back to the each, and it's so gone. But when it was there, it seemed so there, you know? And it's kind of interesting that when something is existing, we have the feeling it's so there. It's kind of nearly like there is a reinforcing process. And so, of course, the idea of emptiness goes totally with that other element of change. That's what will help us to see that. Actually, it's very important to see that the two very much go together. And so in a way here, I mean, we're sitting in meditation, and I'm fairly sure you have lots of different sensations. And also sometimes we have illness. And it's very hard not to identify with our illness. It's very hard no, to, to see, I have this illness, I am more than this illness. But it's very hard because when you have the experience of pain or the experience of difficulty, it's nearly like this becomes your identity, that you have this obstacle, that you have this pain. And so, you know, it's kind of like, trying to, to have, uh, I think the meditation is to help us to see all these different functioning, these different elements, and create space so that we don't so quickly identify, and then intensify, and then reduce.
Which brings me to the next idea, one of the main also aspects of emptiness. And that aspect of emptiness is the fact that things are empty of something. So it's, that's why it's not emptiness with a big capital letter and something floating about. But actually, emptiness is about empty of separate, independent, self-existence. So basically, this aspect of emptiness is very much about conditionality. It's very much about seeing that ourselves, many different things, come upon other elements. So then the emptiness, to see the emptiness is to see the different elements. To see that things are constituted by different elements. And that within all this construction, there is not a special essence by the constitution. It's just different elements together. As long as they stay there, they're there and they go. So let's take a very simple example, the example of the chair. The chair is made of the leg of the chair, the flat part of the chair, and the back of the chair. That becomes the chair, these three elements, plus the wood, plus the different uh, chemical elements, etc. So if I take the back of the chair, it becomes a stool. If I take the leg, then we're just left with the element. So the chair becomes the chair upon the three elements coming together. So you will tell me, so what? Well, it becomes a chair, and then I can use it to sit on it. So there is the coming together of the chair, which then gives it a certain function. But what is interesting is that our relationship to the, to the object, to this object which came upon element, is that often we know it's a chair, we know it's constituted of elements, but we're going to add something, often, a quality. If I'm really tired and I walk many miles and I see the chair, it becomes a wonderful chair. Oh, this is a fantastic chair. But if I am in a hurry and I stumble because the chair is in a way, this is a terrible chair. <laughs> and this is a thing that when we look at the element, we think, oh yeah, you know, it's just a chair made up of elements. But the thing is that we, we, we have a tendency to kind of like make things out of things, and then we add quality. And in a way, we do the same with ourselves. You know, we are a good person. I'm a bad person. We do the same to others. They're a good person, or they're a bad person. And what I found wonderful as an experiment is when a friend of yours come and, uh, or somebody comes to you and you have this very good friend, very good friend, 
And then somebody comes and says, you know your good friend, he did a bad thing. And you say, wait a minute, that's not true. He is a good person. He doesn't do bad things. Or you have somebody you really dislike, they're a bad person, and then somebody comes and says, you know that bad person, they did a really good thing. And say, no, 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 this is a mistake. You know? <laughs> it's like inside there is something which is good or bad. And we do this with a lot of things. We do this with food. Recently I was uh, at a restaurant for a birthday. And I got this little kind of dessert with lots of little dessert. And one I thought was a cream. So I thought, mm, cream should be okay. So I put my spoon in it and it was a little tough. So that's not cream. Then I looked. And I tasted it, and it was rice pudding. <laughs> I mean, I, am, I can be relatively neutral to rice pudding, but after lots of practice. <laughs> for me, rice pudding is like, why would anybody eat rice pudding? I know English people love rice pudding. I think, you know, like, you know, it's like I, I stop myself from thinking it, but this is inherently bad. There is something bad in it. <laughs> they take this good stuff, the rice, and then they make something bad with it. What do they do? So I am always kind of confused by rice pudding because there is this kind of two things coming together. So, in a way, to see, this is what is kind of interesting there is the emptying. To me, what is very interesting about this idea of emptiness, of emptying, of construction, is to realize that we are a flow of conditions, a flow of inner and outer conditions coming together. And then, the flow of condition is relatively stable, but relatively changing. This is a thing, this is what is interesting. So instead of being fixed and solid, and I'm always the same, and I always be the same, and I must be a good Buddhist at all time, no matter what happens, what we're looking at in this practice is that actually there is this flow of conditions, meeting this outer conditions, and what is it that impacted, and how is it impacted? And so I really see the practice not as going beyond our conditions, because I think this is one of the ideas. You hear this word, unconditioned, and you find it in the early text, but unconditioned in the early text, does not mean beyond condition. It means unconditioned by greed, hatred, and ignorance. So again, it is not a statement of fact, of reality. It's more about a practice. It's about a way of life. Being unconditioned by greed, by hatred, and by ignorance. And I think, on the contrary, if you really look at the text, you see 
that actually the main discovery of the Buddha was that we are conditioned. We are not born because uh, he was in a milieu we thought you know people were born in a certain in a certain family and they were kind of in a way con totally kind of uh, doomed to do this or doomed to do that. And he said, no, we are not doomed to anything. We condition, we are all these condition, and we can work on the condition, inner condition and outer condition. And I would see the practice of meditation, that it be the awareness practice, that it be the questioning practice. Because I think, again, they have the same effect to, in a way, an exploration. So not a negation of condition, but the contrary, an exploration of condition. To kind of, in a way, through the practice, to become more and more aware of the conditions that forms us and how they interact with the diverse outer conditions. And then I would say it becomes fun because the idea is not to go on our little emptiness cloud and thinking, yes, I am up in my emptiness cloud and you down there, never mind, you know. Next life, you'll get it better. Me, I'm okay. No, the thing is to really be embedded in the condition and to really kind of see, oh yeah, if this happened, I go this way. If that happened, I go this way. Same with others. Because we have such a tendency to fix ourselves and to fix others. They're always like that. I will never change. And to me, this is in a way like a compassionate move, actually, to the empty. To see conditionality is a compassionate move. To see people do things according to certain conditions. Can I help them or not? I mean, it depends. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. But to really kind of understand condition, this is really, I think, what this emptiness is about. And then, the last aspect I wanted to look at was the third aspect is the aspect actually of connection, what is also called interdependence. So to see that the emptiness, again, is not to negate, to make things disappear, but on the contrary, by dissolving the identification by dissolving the separation, then actually we see how all the different conditions are connected. This flow of condition is connected to others. And so then it makes for, in different ways, if we empty of self-identification, then it's easier to see others. But also it's easier to see how we are connected. And one easy, easy thing to do is with the breath. To me, that's one of the wonderful ways you can actually use the questioning with the breath. 
in a way which helps us to look at emptiness. And so what I would suggest is that you pay attention to the breath, you're aware of the breath, and at some point you ask, but going into the experience, what is this air that I breathe? And just kind of look, be in the experience, you're breathing this air. What is this air that you breathe? And this air that you breathe is air you breathe with everybody else. Which means that Miguel's air goes into his lungs, then it goes into mine, then it goes into yours. That's why it gets stale a bit after a while. You know? That's why we have to open the window. To me, I mean, through the nose, through the mouth, and even more through the pore of the body, through the pore of the body, the air is constantly coming in, going out. So basically, constantly, the world is coming in, and I'm going out. And to see that big, but how do we feel about the air that we breathe? Generally, we have this impression that there is a little cocoon, super number, you know, 100% good, fresh, nice air around me. <laughs> but like that, like that, and this is good stuff. Your stuff, I'm not sure about. But my stuff is good, you know. But it's not like that at all. You know, your air going to my lab, mine goes into yours, and then thanks to the tree gets... Uh, renewed, etc., etc. So in a way, that's what we, we, we're trying to see, we're trying to experience through the practice is actually that connection. That's one basic way to do it, with the air, with the breath. Another way to do it, which is very interesting, is to do it through, in a way, we're sitting here, and you can ask yourself, how do I survive? How do I continue day by day? And so generally we have a very individual, especially in this society, very individual sense of self. I go about doing things, da, da 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 I am the one who makes myself survive. But if you look experientially, how do I survive day to day, hour to hour? Well, I survive thanks to a lot of other things. A lot of condition helps me survive. The air I breathe, I already mentioned it. The food I eat, the water I drink, the clothes I wear, the house we're living in at the moment. And all these I don't make. If I have no food, if I have no air, if I have no water, if I have no clothes, unless it's really, really warm, if I have no shelter, you could also include medicine, then I will not survive. And generally, I don't make it, unless you are the incredible self-sufficient type. Generally, you don't make all these things. And there is in Korea, every time we eat, uh, we recite. Uh, a certain chanting. 
Uh, there is this kind of like formal eating with Paul, and uh, every time you, at, at lunchtime, you have this chanting. And the, the chanting is a chanting of honoring the food. As we receive this food, may all sentient beings, including ourselves, come to realize our true nourishment to be the happiness of meditation and be filled with the joy of Dharma. Let us reflect on our efforts and recollect the source of this food. And so one of the, the things which in the temple, everybody is very kind of uh, precise about, is not wasting food. So when you kind of, you know, you wash rice for a hundred people, you have to clean it several times, and then you have to do this with the water several times. And the one thing you must not do is really drop a grain of rice. And the reason for that, actually, is because it's not just because it's wasted, but actually it's because what is wasted is all the effort and energy that made that grain of rice possible. It's like you are not considering it, you're not respecting it. And so in a way this is something that is, uh, I think, very important through the practice, through this practice of uh, discovering, exploring emptiness, is in a way to recognize how we are connected, how we are interdependent. We are not existing independently of others. We survive thanks to a lot of energy being produced out there. And, and I wanted to finish with um, a poem by Dogen. It's a fairly famous poem, but I think maybe some of you have not heard it. That's the way it goes. Dogen is a Zen master from the Japanese tradition, Soto, the silent illumination tradition. The way of the Buddha is to know oneself. To know oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be enlightened by all things. And I think this is what this emptiness is about, that by actually emptying, then actually we are, we, we are less self-obsessed, we're more open to others, and by being able to creatively engage, then you can really be enlightened, really awakened, awake to everything that exists around us. So, that's what I wanted to say then, I got some, uh, some notes, some uh, questions, which I thought I would cover now. So here we had the three, two questions. Stephen will address one tomorrow, and I will address one today. Do you ever get an answer to what is this, i.e., does an answer ever spring forth from a place of inner wisdom? 
Yes and no. Uh, I think we look at it a little differently. That it's not so much about answering. I think, of course, when um, we ask a question, we have this impression that at some point we should have an answer. But really, I think it's very important to see that this practice is a practice of questioning. This is not a practice of answering. This really is not about answers. This doesn't mean that you cannot have insight through doing this practice. But what I would say to this uh, question is that actually, as you do this practice over time, what you realize is that the answering is in the questioning itself. And so what you realize is more like kind of a, a processual experience. And so is that considered an answer? If you think of it in terms of final answer, I would say no. But it's more that you have a, a, an experience of questioning. And that experience of questioning is kind of the answer itself, but it's not a final answer. It's an, I would say, never-ending questioning, which actually has a lot of richness to it in turn, especially of creative engagement. So you could say that by becoming the question, and I would say one of the things about this questioning is that it helps us over time to become more flexible. So I think personally it's actually not mental in terms of answering, but actually it's more organic. And so it helps us to become more flexible. And from that, we can more creatively engage in our life. So that's my non-answer to this question. <laughs> then there was, um, uh, not this one, that one. Yeah, there is something, uh, a question about, uh, I, I, I suggesting to put the, the question in the belly, but then the person is asking, can we experiment and putting the attention in a different place? When we ask the question, uh, could we put it in the palm? Could we put it in the midsection? Maybe one area only per sitting. I would say, if you want to explore, why not? Try it out. Try it out. But in terms of where to put the attention, in terms of the questioning, then generally I would say try to put it in the belly or in the feet. Because once uh, somebody came to uh, my teacher, Master Cousin, and the person said, don't you think we should put the question, you know, where there is a special place in the forehead. And my teacher said, no, 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 if you want to put it anywhere, put it in the toe. So basically he was saying, bring the energy down. So I think this is very important. With the questioning, I would suggest, you know, put it in the belly, put it in the feet, put it lower down. In the palm, you can try. I don't know, I've never tried in the palm. 
So this thing, when you have an idea, try it out and see what happens. I think that's what meditation and a retreat is about. And then there is a question about, but what if we have, you know, maybe strange feelings of heat, or if we have like feeling of pulsation, of what do we do? And it is true that when we sit in meditation, that it be doing awareness practice or body scanning practice or questioning practice, some people, not everybody, might have physical sensation. Some other people might have images. I mean, it depends. People might have different things. And I think generally with these things, what I would call kind of little extraneous things, which are a little peculiar to different people, I would not necessarily focus on the sensation. You can try to focus on the sensation as long as when you focus on them, they don't intensify, and as long as they're not disturbing. I think that's what's very important. Because sometimes you can have, I mean, this is rare. Uh, I have not seen it happen recently. But sometimes, for example, you can sit in meditation and you move. And then if you give in to the movement, once I had a, when I was in Korea and we were doing like a intense practice and I had a friend, he went with the movement and then I heard bang, <laughs> kind of, you know, he lost his balance. So what I would say, Whatever you feel, that it be a movement, that it be images, that it be sensation, just see them as generally just like the sound of the birds. They're just appearing because of various different conditions. Sometimes we can understand them, sometimes not. People have different sensitivity, different experiences. So I would just generally, what I would notice more is do they happen often? Do they come and go? Do they intensify or not intensify? For I would generally look more at the change of it. But again, explore and see what happens. So, anything else? Any comments or questions? Seems to be rising true. So my, my question would be to 
to say, um, do you see this as a, a legitimate paradox? Actually, you see, today I was looking at something, and they discovered that Libet, who experiments supposedly negated free will, has been negated. I thought, ah! I love this little thing. It's so funny. You know, somebody finds something, somebody finds something else, then you have different conditions which explain this. Uh, this is a big question, but I personally, I would say, uh, in terms of Buddhism, Buddhism, uh, the idea of conditionality does not negate free will. Because what is seen is that it's basically what I was saying, inner conditions and outer conditions. Then in terms of free will, in terms of the Libet experiment, then you see we could go in all kinds of different scientific ways, but let's keep it simple <laughs> and not go the Libet way, which recently has been questioned. And look at the fact that we have senses. Uh, I mean, the way the Buddhists would, would look at it is that a human being has five, uh, five uh, nama factors together with, with the physical form in the physical environment. And that is kind of like a human functioning within the environment. So you have contact through the senses, upon contact through the sense, and the mind is also considered a sense in Buddhism. So through the, the six senses with the mind, you have contact with visual object, etc., etc. Then you have a feeling tone, then you have perception, then you have intention. So that's when you move, the intention is what makes you move, and you have attention. So together, they form consciousness together with, that's what's called name and form, with the body in the environment. So within that, there is really clearly this intentionality. And so the idea is that in a way, you have free will in terms of over time uh, developing you see, because free will will be very much seen in terms of an ethical framework. You know, the, the, the will to be, the intention, so we'll look more at intention. The intention to be compassionate, the intention to be harmless, the intention, etc., etc. So it will be very much seen in that context. So then the Buddha, will, what he will look at in terms of free will, in terms of intentionality is, what are the conditions that will help you to become less harmful? What are the conditions that's going to help you to be more harmless? So that's the way kind of we would look at that in terms of this uh, question. Yes. Uh, 
Okay, that I think is more Stephen's suggestion. <laughs> so you might have noticed we have a li little different angle, which I think is good, you know, because you can, you know, it's presented in different manner. Personally, I would not necessarily go that way. It's valid if the if the circumstances are such that you have moment of calmness and enough of them to ask the question, then why not? I am all for it. But I think we can also uh, use a question as a mean to help us to become more quiet if it works for us. I think this is again, uh, and this is really looking at concentration. It's looking at what is it that anchors me. What, so I think when we, tomorrow I'll, in the instruction, I'll talk more about calmness and things like that, but I think what in a way is important to see that the idea of the concentration of the anchoring is not so much of being calm as an effect. I do this and I calm myself, but more can I come back enough that then I can create very small spaces? So let's say there is lots of obsessive thought. Then you have the obsessive thought and then time to time you come back and then you create a little space for a few seconds. And you can create that little space either by coming back using the question or by coming back to the breath or by coming back tomorrow, I will also suggest the sound. So personally, I would kind of look at it more at the fact that the question also can be a mean of anchoring and that sometimes the question can be used nearly as an antidote to thought if we do it regularly. What is this? What is this? What is this? And that sometimes it can help. But you have to see, when I do the questioning, does it seem to make me having more thought or does it have no effect of that nature? And then you can really use it as an anchor. In terms of sensation, it's the same. You are sitting in meditation and maybe because of people have different conditions, you might have lots of sensation. And then it might be like kind of what is in the forefront. I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow. What is it we put in the forefront? What is it we put in the background? Because when we anchor in the breath or in the question, it's within a wide open awareness. So then you can have the breath in the foreground and then the rest in the background. Or you could have, and often what happens is that, for example, if you have lots of sensation, the sensation are going to be in the foreground. And one way, maybe tomorrow could be helpful for you to see, would be to put the sound in the foreground, listening in the foreground, and then maybe the sensation can go a little bit in the background, and so you will be less preoccupied with them. So it's kind of looking, what is it I can put in the foreground? So it kind of attenuate just a little bit, it doesn't stop, but attenuate a little bit that what I would call intensifying effect. And you can do it with the question or you can do it with the breath or tomorrow you could do it with the listening to the sound. Yes? 
you see, I mean, within the, the koan itself, you, you, you can use different, um, different parts of it. So if you want to, what is this, how did he get here, that's fine too. I mean, also with the question, if you want to have a different formulation, that's okay too, as long as it doesn't lead to proliferation. But yeah, how did he get here, that's also perfectly fine, sure. <coughs> Yes? You started by, <clears throat> by talking about the vows. Mm. The first vow is to, um, to be a benefit to all beings. And I just wondered if you could say how this questioning practice um, is related to that vow. The, the way I saw it uh, is in, is by cultivating samatha and vipassana together with this practice, in doing that practice, then actually it kind of um, dissolves a little the grasping, the identifying, so it helps with the emptying. And if there is more emptying, then compassion arises. Because the self-referencing, the selfishness goes down, then generally there is more seeing of the other. And then in the seeing of the other, then there is a compassion. But also flexibility. I would see that if you do the questioning, it really actually makes you less fixed, less, this is like this, this is like that, I'm like this, they're like that. It makes you more flexible. And then if you're more flexible again, you can be more creatively compassionate. So I would see, I mean, I would see the questioning helping in different ways, but you have to remember, as I mentioned, uh, when I talked about the vows, that in the Zen tradition, it's not done as like a practice as in the Vipassana tradition, but you find it more uh, what to do in terms of compassion in the Bodhisattva precept. And in the Bodhisattva precept, you have lots of practice, you could say, about forgiveness, about all kinds of, about protection of animals, of plants, or things like that. So the questioning, I see it as having, you practice a questioning which can have a certain effect, but together with that, you cultivate ethics, which will be, I would say, maybe more involved in the, creatively doing something in terms of the vow actively. So they kind of help each other. I mean, that's what he said generally, that the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom are actually reinforcing each other. So it's not just a meditation, in a way, helping us to do the vow, to fulfill the vow, but the three trainings together helping us to fulfill the vow. And I think we need to stop here so you can uh, walk a little. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.